This is CliffCentral.com. what we're about to discuss um, I wish it happened in, in, in our country in South Africa because a, a, a leading politician Jonathan yes. of a Marxist Leninist politician in our country he has uh, registered to do a master's degree in the link between a national anthem and white supremacy. Yes, yes, a, a, a poem essentially that is forms part of the national anthem. Right, and I think I think there's a you know there's a, a vested interest in ensuring that this thing is written because the people need to know <laughs> if there's a link between words in a song and white supremacy. And, and of course, our social sciences have green lit this. Uh, this is someone, by the way, who does not have the academic acumen to get to a master's level, but has, because of his position as a politician, been uh, allowed to uh, rise to 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 this this academic. Uh, level so uh, quite uh, concerning, but we are discussing all kinds of academia today right. and the problems. And and it's prescient that a politician is involved in this sort of study, and our guest will get into it. Good. So let's get moment. straight into that because our guest is none other than James Lindsay. Uh, James, have we got you on the line? Yeah, I'm here. Great. Uh, so from Kentucky in Tennessee, I believe. And <laughs> it's adorable. And um, and uh, as uh, our listeners might know, those of you who don't know, James is one of the three authors uh, who recently published their gender studies uh, affair, their gender studies investigation, and some people calling it a hoax. Uh, we'll discuss why they don't really like the word hoax. Um, for it, but uh, you, yourself, uh, Peter Bogosian, and Helen Pluckrose, who who worked on this project, so. I'm not sure if most people are aware that of the conceptual penis uh, study that you published about, I think, a year before the current work. Um, do you want to get into kind of what happened there and then how that led into you doing a larger project? Yeah, sure. So if you're not familiar with the conceptual penis, um, <laughs> Peter and I decided uh, probably sometime late in 2016 to try to write an academic hoax kind of in the uh, shadow of Alan Sokol, who did the big famous one mm. in 1996, mm -hmm. uh, where he just wrote this completely nonsense article for a uh, postmodern cultural text journal called Social Text. And it was arguing that quantum gravity is a social construct, and it just <laughs> butchered science and used all these puns and uh, misappropriated science to make crazy hard-left arguments about uh, cultural commentary and politics. And it ended up getting in. It was a kind of a big event in the 90s, got a lot of attention. And so we were vaguely aware of that. And we saw a number of papers. I don't know if you've seen the Twitter feed called Real Peer Review. Yeah, but I follow, yeah, I follow so, that one. Yeah, we do too and have for some time. And so we saw stuff on there. We, of course, saw the news that came out about that feminist glaciology paper Peter works in a university and just sees this stuff creeping over his life and sees it everywhere. Of course, we also see it on social media. We see it in culture. 
we keep hearing our friends. I mean, I went out with a friend roughly around that time and we were just chatting and it was this, you know, I just met with an old friend for coffee and she was like, you know, we were talking about something and I don't even know what it was. And I made some comment or whatever. Maybe it was a little cheeky. Maybe it wasn't, but it was just straight up something. The reply was, well, is that because you're not examining your privilege? So it's like it's coming up everywhere. Yeah. And uh, we get a little concerned. And finally, like I said, we th- we were thinking about that feminist glaciology paper. And Peter and I were talking on the phone one day and said, you know, if that got published and it had the project that it was embedded in had hundreds of thousands of dollars of, of federal grant money uh, from the sciences, as a matter of fact, if that got published, this field is ripe for being hoaxed. And so let's try to do like what Alan Sokol did. So we wrote this. We came up with this idea that we we're going to argue that penises are better understood as a social construct than as a uh, anatomical organ especially the the male anatomical organ. And so we argued that they cause basically all of our problems, even though they're just a social construction and (laughs) especially climate change. And this got into a utterly terrible journal uh, that diffused our ability to make any cogent criticisms of gender studies, which is what we were actually trying to, to demonstrate. So, Thinking about that, reflecting upon it, we decided that it, maybe it would be worthwhile to learn from the mistakes that we made doing that. You know, we took a very low-level journal. In fact, maybe it's so low-level that they'll publish almost anything. The peer review seemed very cursory and not rigorous. Yeah. So we, we, we couldn't really draw the conclusions we wanted to draw. We started talking about it. We went back and forth for a couple of months and finally decided that you know maybe it's worth trying to do this right and so that set us off on the current thing that's now been dubbed the Grievance Studies Affair, uh, where we tried to write as many papers as we could in a year mm. and to submit them only to journals with standing within the disciplines we were trying to target, the highest ranked journals possible, and then committed from the beginning to letting the world know what happened, regardless of if it fell in our favor or not. Yeah, which is a good way to do research, which is you you don't care whether it goes the way you want it to. It's it's about what the, the outcome is regardless. But before we get on to the actual papers that you, you then followed up and did, um, it's interesting that conceptual penis paper, you would have thought uh, some people who, who do take sort of gender studies quite seriously uh, would have said, oh, well, there seems to be a problem because uh, people who have no knowledge – of this field can publish a paper and we through our peer review system, even though it's a relatively low level journal, they will just publish it. And, and, and so that's, that's a chink in our armor. And so you would think the way they should react is there's a problem and we need to fix that problem in our field, but they didn't, they doubled down. Oh yeah. I kind of feel, and there was a good reason with the journal being as bad as it was. I mean, I can kind of see their point. They didn't listen to the point that we tried to make afterwards, though, which was a little more concerning, is that the the conceptual penis, in a sense, as any, you know, just hoax would be, is mostly a publicity stunt to try to get people to pay attention to the things that we were paying attention to. Not publicity for ourselves, publicity to draw attention to the problem that real peer review is trying to expose, mm. for example. That there, the, the, the conceptual penis was was foolish. It was absurd. It was in a terrible journal. But there are hundreds or thousands, thousands really, of genuine papers that are not quite as absurd that are out there in legitimate journals with standing that are influencing society, that are especially influencing education, media, yeah. getting into policy, 
et cetera. And, and making people tenured professors as well of, of these subjects based on yes. um, writing papers, then citing each other back and forth and, and using, uh, you know, corrupting the academic process and system in order to gain a position. Right. And then those often translate into in, in disciplines that are filled with activism. And this is a, a point that doesn't really get appreciated as much. The, the scholars are also activists, so they're going to put what they're doing to use to create the change that they think needs to be created. So what happens is these people don't just aim to get tenure and then teach what they're doing. Some of them do, but many of them go on to try to work through the committee process to institutionalize the ideas that they're promoting besides just teaching them, like I said, which is its own huge problem. And they institutionalize that, of course, first within education, and then they start creating students who are educated along those lines, thinking that that stuff is legitimate knowledge. And then they can go out and start to corrupt other institutions because the, that, that's where our educated class comes from. Uh, James, do you think there's a sort of long game here being played out by activists in terms of well, what is the goal here? I mean, what is the goal? Is is it really just to destroy all all objective reality around us? Um, why would you call these people activists? And what what do you fear the most if they achieve well, what they achieve? There's a lot to unpack on that. So let's start with: Is there a long game goal? Uh, it's complicated, but the general answer to that is probably yes. I think the majority of the people working in these fields and studying these things are genuine true believers who are trying to do what they think is best. I think that there, however, has been an objective that's never been secret. If you read their literature, it's written in almost every paper. The goals are some kind of societal emancipation to disrupt or undo or unmake or challenge or, or overcome Everything to do with society to rebuild it within the image of their politics, which is largely, you know, based in some kind of radical feminist or radical race or some such radical. Uh, well, we'll get to that. Yeah. Radical identity based politics. And this has been since the 1960s when these fields started to emerge and especially through the 1970s. The people who were getting into them did have this kind of long game, and it's in their literature throughout. There was a purpose. There was a goal. There was an agenda there, and it has been playing out. I think the administrators that started institutionalizing it in the first place weren't really aware that they were dealing with you know, people who wanted to radically reform society. Uh, so I think there was an agenda there from the beginning, and the activism is baked right in. So you can't separate the activism from this stuff we called grievance studies. Furthermore, um, it's part of yet another – it's another way that the so-called anti-enlightenment project, which has been going on since the enlightenment began, has reared its head. You can uh, Stephen Hicks is, of course, a philosopher to pay attention to if you want to see how that kind of really can be laid out. Stephen Hicks laid out the way, you know, he ties it into some Marxism and all of this, but primarily what he's tying it into is, is the tradition of bucking the Enlightenment, which is what we were talking about a moment ago, where you lay out what you want to do and you don't care what the outcome is and you let objective reality be the guide. And so it's not so much that they want to deny that there is some objective reality, although that it's one of their methods. It's that they want to deny 
the methodology that allows us to come to conclusions when those conclusions don't suit the politics that they want. So they want to put their politics ahead of – or their their world vision ahead of truth or or objectivity or discovering knowledge. Right. And and that, that makes them not too different from, from most people, I assume. Except most, yeah, I think most, it's pretty most, common. Most people don't have institutional power. I think that's the difference. Um, right. Hand. So uh, we'll talk about that long march a bit later because we had Jordan Peterson on here a few months ago. And, and that's his whole rise to fame was basically this, was saying we are being taken over by neo-Marxist postmodernist, and a lot of people – think he doesn't understand what postmodernism is um, in this regard. But are you saying he's broadly right that um, institutions are being corrupted by people who actually wish to change society that suits themselves? That's basically what you are agreeing with. I would say that that's, that's correct. As far as getting into the nitty-gritty details of is it postmodern neo-Marxism or whatever term he's using – I think that's a yes and no and mostly yes and probably its own hour-long conversation. <laughs> yeah. Um, and certainly – so just to make a, a distinction there, certainly some aspects of this scholarship that we called grievance studies in the broad stroke would be more attuned with kind of Marxist thought. You see it, for example, in critical race theory much more than you would in, um, say, gender theory. Yeah. Uh, so, James – uh, let's get to some of these papers because, uh, as I said, some uh, many of our listeners and many of the people listening to this podcast have, have probably heard you speak on other shows, and it has been discussed, but it's hilarious, so <laughs> it, it kind of <laughs> never is. gets old. Um, it doesn't. Let's discuss some of them. I think uh, a total of uh, – I, I read the article a bit earlier this week, but uh, uh, there were – is it twenty up to twenty papers that were ultimately submitted, but not obviously all accepted? Yes, we initially set out to write as many papers as we could in roughly a year. Uh, we started to realize that a year would probably be untenable because it started. It's just too many things out there interacting with the public to keep a secret. Mm. So we decided to cut it off at twenty papers, which we were going to land at in roughly ten months. Um, it's very nearly, I think, 10 months that we wrote and submitted new papers. And then it was like editing them, cleaning them up after review, resubmitting, and I, I, dealing with the academic process. I think just for context to listeners who may not be involved, I, I've been involved in research from a medical side of things, and, and it's no different really in, in any other peer-reviewed setting. Um, if, you, if you go out to write a decent academic paper and have it published in a peer-reviewed journal, that's generally – if you if you get that once, maybe twice a year, if you really your output is is pretty good, um, you know that's that's the level you can get to. So you shouldn't be able to get seven papers published in in a, in a year period. It, it shouldn't be possible. Right. I think that's that's something that a lot of people don't understand. This isn't like writing essays or op eds for a magazine or a newspaper mm. or or an online you know blog or something. These papers are serious business. It's usually like you said, one to two a year is pretty prodigious output. Yeah. It's um, what the academic standard is. To have written twenty within one year is actually kind of equal to for most academics for your your kind of middle of the road academic that's like having done their entire academic career yeah. in a year yeah absolutely uh, so i think that that needs to be understood and the seriousness of of also publishing in what are peer reviewed journals for any field is is also to be understood because 
these are this is the so-called science that any field draws from and right. and 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 whenever anyone says anything they go all right well what does the evidence say and they go back to their collection of data which is all the journal articles um and in fact uh, if you're a relatively uh, low level researcher you have to be quite heavily referencing uh, other people and experts in the field and, and citing well-cited articles. So uh, it, it, it does really matter that, <laughs> that there's a whole bunch of rubbish being published. Right. That's exactly right. You do have to do that, and that is exactly the process. A lot of people don't know much about the academic process at all, which is understandable. But mm. to give you know one more point of context within you know the difference between an academic paper and, say, a magazine article – when you submit a magazine article, the editor reads it, gets back to you probably within a few days or a week at the most, gives you some suggestions. You make those changes, and then they usually publish it, and the whole process might take a, a week or two. Um, when you write an academic paper, not only should the paper itself with all the reading and research, et cetera, take you most of a year, once you submit it, and at least in the humanities – I know it's different in different fields – but at least in the humanities, you're often subjecting yourself now, the review process, the editing, the second review, the acceptance onward to publication is a process that typically takes three to six or eight months per paper. This isn't, you know, a speedy process. Yeah. And so the idea that we had at one point, we actually had 12 papers under peer review at exactly the same time. <laughs> <laughs> which I don't know of any academic who's ever done that. Uh, I know there are some, but I don't know any who have, have had 12 papers under peer review at the same time. And the stress of that was insane, by the way, just trying to keep up with it, and waiting <laughs> well, to hear back. And Well, also because you were running this kind of, um, <laughs> you know, sweatshop of, of, of bad uh, publications, and you had to probably keep track of which one were they talking about? Um, I assume you're running different right. email addresses, but still. Um, no, that was that was really difficult. In fact, um, I, I got somehow landed in the role of project manager, if you will. And, and it was my job to keep up with all of that. And it was my job to do – I did all the submissions. I did all the, the record keeping and all everything. And so Peter and Helen often had no idea which paper was which or who submitted them or where they were submitted to. I had to keep that stuff live in my brain all the time. And so when we got to like 8, 10, 12 papers out under review at the same time, my, you know, the feeling was like having way too many tabs open on your browser all the time. And I couldn't sleep and I just, my brain was just like, it was in this kind of fog all the time with so many things to think about to kind of just keep tabs on and track of and check and Oh, it was really, it was really a <laughs> it's thing. It's, it's very you, difficult to it, keep track of. It's your maths background. That's why you got, you got nailed with that. I, yeah, I think so. I think that there was that. And, um, I mean, I had the right not to, I don't, I don't like to talk about our individual contributions too much, like that we did different things, but it is true where we, we operated as a team, but we did have very different skills and I was kind of the bring it all together and make it work person. So yeah. that lands you in the, in the, role i also work really well with helen i work really well with pete and pete and helen's writing styles are very different so when they work directly together sometimes the sparks fly and so intermediating <laughs> was was sort of important uh so that kind of kept me in that role as well well i mean i think the stress was was mainly around a particular paper which i don't think was accepted um was where you took a chapter of mind Kampf and you replaced the word jew with the word 
man, I believe, or male, or something to that effect. And you submitted that, and they said, I believe, it was a great paper, um, the one that you submitted. Now, as, as, a, as someone who loves to, to, to not troll, okay, fine, I'll use the word troll. Yeah, you love to troll. I like to troll people, especially people, you know, just to make fun of them, because it's, it's fun. That is a stroke of absolute genius. I think I think it's wonderful. There was a meme that we shared about about you, um, <clears throat> Peter and, and Helen, and it says, uh, "When you get a feminist journal journal, journal to publish my, uh, what to mind Kampf. yeah to publish mind Kampf. and agree the, with yeah, it, the feels win. <laughs> it yeah. was it was that's an amazing amazing troll. I mean, whose idea was that? First of all, I think okay, so that that's a award. good story. Just to make it clear. We did two attempts at the Mein Kampf with some seriousness, and um, one was where the one that did not get accepted, we replaced the word Jew with with whiteness, and so it was more along the lines of of a critical race paper, which is more difficult than a gender paper. We learned. Now we did get one that was accepted and was on the verge of being published. I had already approved the final proofs and everything; it just <laughs> hadn't come out. And that we took the chapter of Mein Kampf in which Hitler lays out the need for the Nazi party and we replaced the party or our movement with intersectional feminist ideas. And so, (laughs) yeah. Yeah. So whose idea was that? You know, we, we have thought about this and looked back on this and we honestly don't know. Uh, I think Helen suggested the idea that we rewrite old horrible things at least once. And you know, take something like an old angry theology tract and just rewrite it in terms of feminism or something like that and try to get it published and then reveal, oh, it was a horrible, you know, angry Calvinist ranting at everybody <laughs> or something like that. You know, and then one of us stumbled upon the idea of trying it with Mein Kampf. And for the life of me, I don't remember who it was. And once we hit Mein Kampf, all the rest of them don't make sense to even try. It's it's the, <laughs> yeah, it's it's the, the pinnacle, pinnacle of the yeah. genre. Absolutely. And so that was actually by far the most difficult paper we did. It's very difficult for a number of reasons. One is that Hitler's not a very good writer. Secondly, um, it's actually very difficult to find parts of Mein Kampf that are amenable to translation into this stuff, which is, I guess, a good thing. And then thirdly, and this is the philosophical difficult part, is that, that Hitler was was definitely a modernist. And he was one of the things that the postmodernists react, were reacting against. And so to take a thoroughly modernist text that's written in bombastic, you know, sweeping language and try to rewrite that as an academic paper from a postmodern background, I mean, that was really a challenge. We thought that there was no chance that this could possibly succeed. And yet, um, yeah, it did. one did. <laughs> All right. And I, I don't know what it is about um the the sort of no screening for things that are kind of clearly reprehensible so as long as they 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 toe the right party line uh you know there's the the, the dog park paper which is probably the one you've got the most um attraction out of oh uh, yeah um we, things it, hilarious <laughs> just explain the paper quickly to those who haven't heard it, and even to those who have as i say it never gets old yeah, so the dog park paper, which I've kind of taken – the dog park paper is a nice way to phrase it. It's what we actually called it when we, with each other. But I've actually taken a call on it the dog humping paper now because it's really what it was about. Yes. The idea was that there was a feminist researcher who went to dog parks in Portland, Oregon, 
every day for a year for if you work it out. It says a thousand hours total. So if you work it out, it works out to four or five hours a day for every working day, but never in the heavy rain. So these absurd details got added throughout. <laughs> and she observed dog behavior, especially humping and and dog fights and uh where where they went to the bathroom when and they did it in unauthorized locations. And then supposedly one tracked, dog peed on another and it was other stuff like one that. dog peed on another dog's head is in the paper, yeah. <laughs> And they defecated in the in the communal water bowl and things like that. I mean, it's just so many absurd details that had no purpose whatsoever for the paper. So she observed all this dog behavior, claimed that she personally inspected the genitals of slightly under 10,000 dogs. Which is ridiculous. I mean, that's what I'm – There's not 10,000 dogs at three parks over a year. Who's letting you inspect their dog's genitals? But it's not even just that. It was inspect the dog's genitals and then interrogate the owners about their 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 sexuality. So it was like if you imagine this in reality, you have this this feminist lady sitting in a dog park on a bench or something watching and taking notes in her notepad. And then a dog humps another dog. So she quickly gets up, goes over to the dog, picks up its tail and looks at its genitals and then turns and says, excuse me, sir, are you gay? Over and over thousands of times. 10,000 times. And it's, it's absolutely preposterous that somebody would think that this data were real. And so anyway. Did you include any data of how many times she got bitten? No, it, it, <laughs> we did not collect that data, unfortunately. Uh, yeah. I, so Yeah, sorry, carry on. Well, the point was that you could learn about about rape culture by watching dogs and how people react to dog humping in the park. And you could figure that out by analyzing it through black feminist criminology. And the conclusion was that dog parks in, in cities are petri dishes for canine rape culture, as we phrased it, that they're rape condoning spaces. And then without any evidence whatsoever, we just said, you know, an analog, perfect analog to human rape condoning spaces like nightclubs. And then the, the suggestions at the end were to essentially train men as we would train dogs with leashes and shock collars, although it metaphorically because it would be politically unfeasible to put men in leashes and yank on their leashes when they misbehave. That's in the paper. Uh, and, and just to say that one of the reviewers wrote that they thought the, the, the paper would make an important contribution to feminist animal geography. Oh, and, yeah. They thought that it was an incredibly rich and innovative paper. I think that's a quote, innovative. Yeah, it sure is. Um, w- w- yeah, wonderful paper, incredibly innovative, rich in analysis, and extremely well-written and organized, given the incredibly yeah. diverse literature sets and theoretical questions brought into conversation. <laughs> yeah, that's real stuff the reviewer said about this. And then the journal gave it an award. The journal said that this is the kind of scholarship that exemplifies feminist geography. They're having their 25th anniversary, which means that their journal has existed for 25 years and has been putting out this crap for 25 years. And then they said that this dog humping paper is a perfect example to set the tone for the next 25 years of feminist geography. And I think they're right. And that, that's from the editor of that of that journal. Yeah, it's, the it's, editor it's, emailed me on not the even 7th like an of errant day. reviewer. Right. <laughs> no, it was it, it's unbelievable. And the, the the were the were the were the reviewers worried that we said, you know, maybe we should try to first of all that you you can you can maybe train rape culture out of men by training them to, like dogs or the only reason we can't we can't uh, put men in leashes and yank those leashes is because it's not politically feasible. Did they zero in on any of this? No. Not at all. Instead, they zeroed in on 
ideas like when we inspect a dog's genitals that we need to indicate that we showed the dog's proper respect. <laughs> and they zeroed in on the idea that um, – Did you ask that, for consent? You know, <laughs> yeah, yeah, you have to ask the dogs for consent. They zeroed in on things like on details like that. And then like another detail that they really were concerned about was that we as humans don't really have the the faculties or we need to explain how we have the faculties to tell when a dog wants to be humped and doesn't want to be humped. So we can't always call it dog rape because it's not clear when a dog is actually, you know, consenting. So we had to basically add in – well, not basically, literally. We added in a sentence something to the effect of I as a human rather than a dog can't tell when a dog wants to be you know, having having humping going on in the park. But I, it was just the most absurd thing possible. Yes, it is beyond absurd. Yeah, um, it is. So I actually want to talk about these, these journals um, because, I mean, I don't, I don't do – Scientific literature. I don't read that for fun by any means. Um, what are these journals? Are these journals uh, okay? First of all, what are they, and how much influence do they actually have? Well, I don't know exactly how to judge how much influence a journal has. Uh, they do this. They they have a number of measurements for this. Impact factor. Yeah, is, I was going to say the most famous. There's another one called immediacy factor, and then there are like 12 different kinds of impact factor, and <laughs> then there's this schemago is one of the most um, or Simago, I don't know how you pronounce it, is one of the most famous uh, ranking things on the journal ranking systems on the internet, but maybe not the most authoritative. And they've made up their own. And I mean, there's a ton of different metrics, which is why we didn't really get into this uh, anywhere so far. It's, it's, a, it's a very difficult problem. All of the journals in an absolute sense are fairly low in impact factor. Uh, I think the highest journal is, is the, that accepted one of our papers is somewhere around an impact factor of two, which is not terribly high. Uh, it's not really low. It depends on the field. It's average. Um, it's, it's, it's not bad. It's about I mean, average. Uh, right. To put, give context, I mean, something like Nature, which this week posted an editorial saying that um, sex uh, has nothing to do with your genitals, um, has an impact factor of about 40. That's the top uh, journal in the world. Um, right. And the Lancet will probably be somewhere in the 30s, I would imagine. Um, but yeah, but there's closer. plenty of papers that sit in the sort of one to sort of seven or eight range, I would imagine. Yeah, from from my experience and from talking with Peter and his experience and then talking with a few other academics, the majority of the journals that the majority of academics publish in, if it has an impact factor higher than one, they're usually pretty happy. Yep. Um, so – Having some that had an impact factor of two is is not irrelevant. Now, as for how much impact they have, I, I, let me let me back up one step. They are globally kind of a niche thing, and not a lot of people pay attention to the stuff we would call grievance studies outside of grievance studies. But within their own universes, we picked really significant journals, the best journals that we could pick that we could find that also you know had the aims and scope for the papers that we had written which often we wrote the paper before we read any journal aims and scope and just tried to figure out a journal it could go to um so it's all very very complicated how that works out but some of these journals for instance fat studies is one that people bring up we did a paper for for a journal called fat studies yeah fat studies has a very low impact factor it's a very small journal in a very niche field but it's also the leading journal in that niche field so how do you rank that um how much influence do these things have? That's a really interesting question because you have to look at where they have influence. 
these people that that do this kind of scholarship have, as we discussed a little bit ago, really worked their way into the institution of the academy in particular, and they've really taken over education. So if you want to say how much influence do they have, say, on industry directly, probably very little, a little bit. I mean, this implicit bias stuff is all over the place. But how much impact do they have on setting educational curriculum? Uh, a lot. How much how much impact do they have on setting up the administrative infrastructure of the of the universities? A lot. And so if you you want to look at how much influence they have, you kind of have to look at what they're influencing. And when they are absolutely working as hard as they can to remake the academy as something that promotes their worldview and the academy is the gold standard standard of education, of knowledge production and so on. It's it's one of these things where their their primary effects are probably pretty small and their secondary effects are enormous, which is why I go out with a friend and get asked about my privilege. Yeah, I, I think I think also what's what's important to note is you, you seem to target multiple areas of, of so-called grievance studies. And we'll get to now why you, you've called it grievance studies. But, for example, you've mentioned the fat studies one. We've done the uh, gender studies one, which is the dog park, um, the dog park one. Uh, you did one called Hooters, which was yeah. – <laughs> masculinity um, about masculinity um, the thesis being that men fr- frequent restaurants like Hooters because they're nostalgic for patriarchal dominance and enjoy being able to order attractive women around um, that's right <laughs> that was that was one on that then there was one where you you kind of were um, um, assuming exactly what the the reaction would be of these people hoax on hoaxes um, yes, that's <laughs> that's our, our our kind of like most uh, that's our masterpiece. Or or, or actually, Ho H two, which I prefer as the title. Um, yeah. Um, or I don't know if you wonder that it's hot, but um, the thesis being that academic hoaxes, hoaxes, or other forms of satirical or ironic critique of social justice scholarship are unethical, characterized by ignorance, and rooted in a desire to preserve privilege. Um, which is exactly what kind of gets said when you when you when you show up uh, any of these studies. Uh, so, um, one called Moon Meetings. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I quite enjoy this description. No clear thesis. A rambling poetic monolo- monologue of a bitter divorced feminist, much of which was produced by a teenage angst poetry generator. So AI, I'm assuming, before being edited into something slightly more realistic, which is then interspersed with self-indulgent auto-ethnographical reflections on female sexuality and spirituality written entirely in slightly under six hours. I mean, that 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 was was published, right? And without any revisions or comments. Right. Yeah, that was accepted. It would have been published uh, next month, actually, is when it was slated to come out. Um, They accepted that one without a single revision or a single comment, except to remove something that might have had a copyright issue. I'd put a put an epitaph or epigram at the top of it where it said, you know, some quote from some book. And they said, oh, well, we don't know if you can get copyright to do that. So let's take it out. But otherwise that was the only comment that they made just a you know, kind and of, there a, was a highly a feminist point. piece written by you, the white male. Oh yeah. So one of their huge points is that the, and this is for real, this is one of the biggest things in the feminist epistemology. So you talked about the hoax on hoaxes paper. That was a feminist epistemology paper. Feminist epistemology is a branch of, of scholarship within fem, academic feminism that argues about how things can be known 
and it takes a feminist slant on how knowledge production is possible. And so feminist epistemology, one of the things it asserts in general is that your ability to make knowledge is tied up in your identity. So, for instance, you hear it all the time is that a, a man cannot possibly know what it's like to be a woman and can't understand the woman's perspective. But then I wrote this paper as a bitter divorced feminist woman and <laughs> purely from the idea of lived experience. Showing, in fact, that I do understand the perspective of a bitter divorced feminist <laughs> woman, and I do have the ability to to reach into her her lived experience enough to either satirize it or empathize with it, depending on what the objective would be in, in reality. And so it really turns on it. It's really a stupid paper in a very, very bad journal as far as the the you know, imp the impact that that journal would have. It's a very niche thing. It's very small. It was an accident and it went there. But it does raise an important point, which is that their claim that people can't understand one another if they cross identity lines is bullshit. Yeah. It is possible to empathize with somebody of a different race, a different sex, a different gender, a different identity, period. It is possible to empathize and actually understand their position. Yeah. And that, that there's some special knowledge granted by being, say, a, a woman or a lesbian or a trans person. There's only – sure, you have that direct personal experience and nobody else has it, but there's not a whole lot of, of weight behind the claim that that gives you some special insight to knowledge that other people can't possibly understand. Therefore, you need to be promoted and listened to. Yeah, agreed. And um, I mean this just goes on, the list, the list of, of the papers. I don't want to go through each and every one, but suffice oh, it to many. say you did, you did one on porn. Uh, you did um, stuff on intersectional feminism and, and education. Uh, you did stuff on, <laughs> on a female, feminist astronomy, which I see uh, just two weeks ago or a week ago. Was it, uh, was, I'm not sure if it was the Washington Post or the New York Times or uh, the New Yorker. One of those uh, publications published something all about feminist um, astrology. Um, slightly different, but uh, but these things are finding their way into the mainstream. So I, I think, yeah, I think the in terms of the impact, they they do seem to be having an impact in that our society is very much engaging with these ideas, which seem to be fed in the background by uh, academic uh, institutions, which are based on nothing. Right. Let me be abundantly, absolutely clear on a point. Um, I do want people to engage with ideas, and I'm glad people put these ideas out. Engagement's fine. That's the whole purpose. That's what John Stuart Mill talked about with, you know, not silencing an argument and listening to the other side from somebody who genuinely understands it and believes it and all of this, the best case, putting the best case forward for the thing you don't accept, and then creating the argument around it. Where the problem arises is when you aren't allowed to criticize that idea because it's tied up in something. And it, maybe it's somebody's religion. It's a very historical case. Maybe it's somebody's politics. You see that with the communist things, for example. Maybe it's someone's identity, and that's what's going on now. So if you can't criticize, you can't question, you can't doubt, you can't challenge the ideas coming out, When what what is meant by engagement, right? It's not engagement in, in a sense that pro that produces something good. It's basically asking somebody to bend the knee and bow before you and forcing them to take up your beliefs. And we've been down that road countless times before. It never leads anywhere good. And so it's not good that it's happening now. Yeah, especially in institutions like um, like universities. Uh, that's not the – Yeah, in fact – yeah. 
So, Let me jump back to one more paper. You mentioned the one about the yeah. feminist educational theory. So that one was being treated welcomingly by the reviewers, but it wasn't ready to be published. We're pretty sure that it would have gotten in eventually because they did ask us to revise it and submit it again, although they didn't give it you know, the, the stamp that it's moving forward yet. So it wasn't a sure thing, but we do think that the argument was something they were warm to and they definitely liked it. But it's really important to realize what that paper argued. That paper was about the so-called progressive stack, which means that we're going to line people up and figure out some means to determine how privileged they are. And then we're going to give opportunities in reverse order according to privilege. So the more privileged you are, the fewer opportunities you get. So in the case of the classroom, how we were applying it, those students wouldn't be allowed to speak in class. They wouldn't have their emails answered. They maybe would be spoken over. They'd be invited to sit in the floor and wear chains to experience reparations so that they could learn what it's like not to be privileged. Meanwhile, students with less privilege would be given more opportunities to speak, more help, get their emails answered, and uh, essentially, you know, have the opportunity to participate in the classroom fully or even kind of extra fully uh, be given more attention and more more access. And this idea, whether the paper got in or not, this idea was considered extremely interesting, extremely uh, important and a great possibility to initiate educational reform. And this isn't pure fiction. We base this off of a, a news story that came out last fall that argued or that that, ins- that showed that there's reported on a woman at the University of Pennsylvania, I believe, that was doing this in her classroom, not with the chains and sitting in the floor. We just exaggerated sure. a bit further, but she was progressively stacking her classroom so that white male students essentially didn't have the opportunity to speak, maybe didn't get their, their emails, went to the bottom of the priority list, et cetera. And she got in trouble for doing it. And we thought, well, what if we can get something arguing that they should do that in the educational literature? Then all of a sudden, you know, that would be justified. And the, the, this journal, Hypatia, is sort of one of the biggest as far as feminist pedagogy or feminist uh, educational theory goes. It's one of the biggest journals covering that. And they were very warm to this idea. They're also the same journal that published our hoax on hoaxes paper, which says that you can't criticize them. And they are the kind of, you know, journalistic home for feminist epistemology, for feminist knowledge production uh, theory. And so this is a major, major journal in the in the disciplines of of how education and knowledge production work that were very warm to you can't ever criticize us. So that's the point I was just making. And then with the educational theory um, that you can prescribe something that's absolutely patently unethical. And they think that, oh, well, this is great because it's overcoming privilege and that's necessary. They sound like the pers- the, the, the perfect uh, Nazi Auschwitz god. Superior to everyone else, and um, if you criticize us, you're against the, you know, whatever the idea of, yeah, of, of the Third Reich, and uh, we're going to treat you like an like an animal. It's the same. You've, it's the same sort of psychology, I assume, not being a psychologist. You've seen it in different places at different times, and they're never good places. You saw it within the religious inquisition. Uh, you saw it. You see it within basically all of your the Nazis. Yes, within the communist regimes as well. It's it, it never leads to a good place. 
it just never leads to a good place. Well, you're describing a lot of this and I'm just, you know, we're, we're sitting in a country where there's, um, quite a recent history of, of racial discrimination enforced by the state. Um, right. And which, which, sorry. Yeah. There's not history. It's still ongoing. Yeah. Okay. So now it's been reversed in the, in the, in the, in the opposite direction. Okay. To try and inverted commas do exactly that. Fix the, the wrongs of the past and, and teach people their privilege. But we, we have a lot of these things. Again, the chain thing, obviously that's taking it to, to another level, but there are, it's not uncommon for people to advertise jobs and say, this is not open to certain people of certain races or certain sexes or genders. Um, Etc. That's that's a it's an, it's an accepted thing in our society. No one even blinks twice um, at that kind of stuff, and that that in, in includes jobs. It includes admission to university for certain degrees, um, admissions to masters and postgraduate studies, etc. So that that's <laughs> it's not a it's not a distant reality, and it's not in published in a journal. It's it's a it's a very real thing in our country. Yeah. Well, the the, stark, sure. the starkest uh, reminder of that is if you go on on the freeways. Around Johannesburg, uh, there used to be um, a new agency, and it says a hundred percent black owned and operated. And this was the biggest font on the billboard for this digital advertising agency. So their advertising message is that they are a hundred percent black owned and operated, i.e., black people owned and operated. And no one right. raises an eyebrow at this. And I'm like, why can't you just? What happens if you say a hundred percent? Indian owned or 100% white owned. I mean, it, obviously there will be an outcry then, but if it's 100% black owned, it's perfectly legitimate. And if you say it's wrong, you're racist. There you go. Right. So, so, you, so you point out that this is a social reality, and I, I don't want to pretend that I'm familiar with with South African politics beyond a, a very small yeah, it, or it, it's culture. Complex, obviously. Yeah, I understand that it's a. It's. I mean, I also come from a place in the southeast here where there was you know, heavily institutionalized racism, you know, 40, 50 years ago. Yeah, Jim Crow. But, and and before, cetera. Jim yeah. Crow, et cetera, yeah. But I didn't live during that time, so I can't really talk about it. Uh, I do see the hangovers of, of of a lot of that. But nevertheless, you said that it's part of your reality and it's not part of the journals, but it is. This is where these ideas came from. This is where these ideas were, were, were legitimized. Uh, this is the idea of privilege didn't come out of thin air. This was something that a woman, Peggy McIntosh, wrote up and wrote as a journal article unpacking the invisible knapsack in 1989 or I think nine. And so this idea took the took the the grievance studies literature by storm when it did be, I think, because it tapped into certain ideas of guilt. Uh, with South Africa, I think it's probably likely, given your what I do know about your history and what I do know about some of the scholarships surrounding it, is that what's called post-colonial studies has been really, really influential, I would say, in what's going on. But that, again, comes out of these journals. You're talking about originally people like uh, Theodore Adorno. You're talking about Edward Said. uh uh, what's it, homie Baba? I mean, you're talking about people who, uh, Gayatri Spivak. These are the scholars that looked into this kind of stuff and what they built up around this kind of nation privilege theory or built onto it in the intervening years has been a structure to where when you can get people to believe in the underlying power dynamics that certain people are disadvantaged and other people have unnatural ad or uh, unearned advantage, which would be privilege. 
that you can justify the um, the oppressed group or the marginalized group having certain, uh, I guess, liberties or freedoms or powers. They they have they they become protected classes. They become special in some way. They gain access to certain things that would be unthinkable for other identity groups. Now, of course, this the danger here is when you start trying to just put this in terms of identity rather than say ideology or beliefs or something like that. Then you're you're really going down a road that's difficult to navigate. And there are a lot of reasons to believe that this is if you want to solve the problems that they want to solve, this isn't the way to go. Well, yeah, it's about it's about learning from history, of course. Um, so, based on on what James, based on what you have done so far, um, what the, the goal was to have a bit of fun and to show that all this is bullshit, right? It's been well. Few- the goal was was to find out if our our assumptions were correct that one's political uh, it, that that following the political line would be sufficient to lower the defenses of the peer reviewers enough to let broken, bad methodology, ridiculous, absurd, or blatantly unethical ideas pass through and, and become and laundered into – Yes, and be laundered into, into the gold standard of knowledge, which is an academic study. And that I think we did demonstrate. Yeah, uh, yeah, I think I think most people would agree with that. So I looked at a bit at the at the fallout, uh, so to speak. Many people, um, many academics, I would argue from STEM, seem to say that this is great. This is a lot of fun. Uh, you, another nail in the coffin of identity politics and all the rest. Um, whereas there was a particular criticism that said, doesn't matter what you choose, you know, what what field of knowledge you wish to choose, there will always be kooks in it. So if you if you um, you know uh, supply a paper to a scientific paper about about something really kooky, it might be published one day. It's not a, it's not it's not special. Uh, the papers you chose are not that special. This could apply anywhere. Now, as someone who's not in science or in academia, what do you say to that? Uh, I don't. I don't deny that there are likely to be exploitable problems in most fields or probably all fields or the whole academic publishing process. And there are certain issues and corruptions and they do need to be addressed and that there are long discussions to have about that. However, I see no reason to believe that in the majority of academic fields and especially in uh, the, the sciences particularly, I don't see that there's such an easily exploitable loophole to where you can get people to just completely dismiss rigor as long as they're getting to the preferred conclusions. I just don't see it in other fields. It's possible that it's there and fine, but this unique problem that you can stoke identity-based grievances and therefore get things accepted at the academic level, the gold standard level, that recommend blatantly unethical practices be incorporated into education or that uh, insist that there's a huge problem with ever criticizing the ideas or that, um, you know, we maybe should train men like we train dogs so that we can get rid of rape culture or that the best way to fix problems with straight men not wanting to date trans women would be to get the guys to stick stuff up their butts so that they become more comfortable with that. This is this is something unique and different, and it's something that people have been sounding the alarm about for decades. And 
for decades, people were saying, oh, no, 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 there's problems everywhere. Oh, this, oh, that. But there's not this problem everywhere. This problem is certainly unique, and it's certainly something that I have found is very easy to exploit. And the most concerning bit and the thing that you really have to say about this at the end of the day is when if, – if you were to submit a bogus crap paper, say, to The Lancet because this happened, right, yeah. with the vaccine. Yeah, thing. Wakefield, yeah. Yeah, so how was that fixed? What happened? Way more rigorous medical science came in. The exact same thing that it was supposed to be, that was supposed to be happening is what came in and fixed it. What on earth could have fixed the dog park paper being honored? Nothing in feminist geography. That paper was selected as exemplary for the next 25 years of the discipline. What in feminist geography could possibly exist to correct for the errors in that paper's reasoning? There's no corrective me mechanism there. And in fact, the way our peer reviews went made every one of our papers. They never questioned our rigor except with the Hooters paper read an inter interdisciplinary journal. And then it was easy to fudge through that. They only pushed us further into the political insanity or the step away from rigor with the porn paper you mentioned the peer reviewers asked us to remove all the quantitative data and just focus on narrative because it's more powerful yeah and i, I mean in the comparison you use for the the anti-vaxxer um what started the anti-vaxxer problem um you know not only were there papers produced which uh, scientific papers good rigorous scientific papers which proved that was all nonsense um but there was contrition on the si on the side of the scientists on the side of the journal on the side of the editor um the medical fraternity uh, rose up against that entire uh, paper and 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 against the people who had published it and falsified the data um th there was a lot of fallout uh, you've you've shown that there's huge problems, and as far as I can tell, there's there's no fallout. They're just basically yeah. The fallout, on. the fallout looks to be like the worst possible thing that they could do is that they the a few of the journal editors I think have published statements saying that they're going to train their editors more thoroughly in how to detect when the author isn't genuine. So they already have some processes to do that, but that's the that's not the point. Yeah, that's yeah. exactly no, the opposite not at of all. the point. It's the opposite of what you should be doing. The whole point of peer review, because peer review is blinded, is that the reviewers don't know who did it. They aren't supposed to know who did it. And the, the work is to be judged on its merits. So if the only screen that they can put up to catch this stuff is to say, well, we're going to look harder to make sure that it's not a fake author, then what are they? what's going on? That's exactly the wrong answer. It means that they, on some level, must understand that their methodologies are not sufficient to block the kinds of stuff that we were writing, and they must know. I mean, if I were dedicated to it and I had the identities to use as as names if people volunteered those, everybody at this point should be able to admit that I or me together with Peter and Helen, if we had to, you know, the capacity and interest to do this, we would be unstoppable. What would stop us from publishing 100 papers in the next five years? Nothing. Yeah. They couldn't stop us. If we just had a way to get past this stupid screen that they're putting up, they couldn't stop us from putting out more illegitimate ideas. And that's kind of the point. And we don't need to do that because why do we need to write more ridiculous papers? We've drawn attention. You can go look in their journals, and I bet you you can't tell the difference. Uh, no, no. My favorite game is, is, is this satire or is this real? If I see – and then new, new peer review on Twitter came out two, three years ago. 
And it just boggles my mind what people get away with. Um, it really does. But I think the fundamental problem, James, is that these studies have no critical foundation. There's no standards that anyone accepts. There's no period- periodic table of the elements, you know, that, that people agree on and build on from there. And, no, um, exactly. And number two. There's a matrix of domination is what there is. There's there a med- – there's a nest of offense-based rules that is very, very, very complicated and ever-shifting and moving that you have to toe the line to, and that takes the place of genuine academic rigor in these in these fields. That's why they deserve to be called grievance studies because they're studying social grievances rooted in identities, and the only rigor they have is navigating the complicated and shifting offense-based rules that define what grievances are legitimate and which ones aren't. And I think you're facing – Two, two separate problems here. These people are shameless or cult-like. I can't, I, I, I can't determine which one. Probably both. Shamelessly cult-like, perhaps. And number two, I don't think most people really understand the dangers of these sort of ideas permeating within university. Um, you sure, spoke, you that's, spoke, the- that's the biggest problem. I mean, you've spoken about it on our podcast now and on Joe Rogan's podcast. For those who haven't heard it, I think it's really, really illuminating. You must go listen to that. But as someone from South Africa who's half Arab um, and, and my co-host is, is Jew, so we're not even like real white people here, um, <laughs> we, we can sort of see this. There, manif- there's some victim Olympics for you. There we go. Uh, we can sort of see go. see this sort of stuff um, emanating from political power, from intellectuals, from media. And we are, you know, so-called whites are a minority in, in South Africa. And we're not oppressed by any means. There's no white genocide. I'm not saying that at all. But you can see it permeate throughout the society. As soon as a political party latches onto one of these ideas and uses their public platform to really amplify that message, it gets really hairy very quickly. Um, and, and, that's, and that's the biggest problem I find. That's exactly what, that's exactly right. When you said that when they are institutionalizing these ideas and setting them up in education, in academia, in the universities, that's where this problem, this is why this is so dangerous. Again, it's not dangerous for these ideas to get out into society. It's people can debate them and they can think about them. They can reject them. They can argue it. Great. It's dangerous for these ideas to get out in society. A, legitimizes knowledge when there's no reason to accept that that's what they are beyond just prejudices and opinions that were pushed through a system and laundered. I mean, Brett Weinstein called this idea laundering, and I think that's a brilliant concept. The parallel of money laundering, where you take dirty money, you put it through some channels, make it clean, and now you can spend it, et cetera. Uh, Here you have prejudices and opinions. You put them through the academic process, and now there's a study saying it, and it's knowledge. So when you have them legitimized as knowledge, that's a problem. When people can cite something that looks authoritative and truly authoritative, that's a problem. And then when so much of it is designed around the idea that you can't criticize it or that if you criticize it, you're only doing so because of some kind of attempt to maintain your privilege. Or if you are one of these identity groups, you have a false consciousness going on. Um, there's something really broken there. It's That's where it starts getting really dangerous when you can't criticize an idea – or if you do criticize it, you're accused of some some moral crime or some legitimate crime, depending on the country. And eventually, if it gets institutionalized at that level, it will be legitimate yeah. crime, hate hate speech or whatever. I mean, this is where you really start to get into some some dark dark territory. And so this is more concerning than it looks. And of course, you mentioned media, you mentioned politics, et cetera. Well, if this stuff's legitimized as knowledge, 
where do you think those people are going to get this stuff? And you have activists putting it in front of them as lobbyists all the time. When you have people educated in this stuff at the university, and that's who goes on to produce your media, but they kind of bought into all this on some level or another, either whole hog or less, but still think it's generally got some legs to it. What kind of media are they going to produce? More importantly, what kind of media are they going to veto? What kind of stuff are they going to censor? Are there's a documentary being made by a guy, Mike Nana, who's got our YouTube channel, uh, which is YouTube. The channel's name is Mike Nana. It's his name, N-A-Y-N-A. Yeah, he produced that and, video with you guys. Yeah. It was yeah. a good he's gonna, Yeah, he's keeping up with putting up content about that. So anybody who's interested in carrying on with the saga, that's where to go. But anyway, he's worked in the media industry in Australia for a long time, and he's witnessed this stuff there to where okay there's so many grants or whatever that are given to produce media and you know some number of years ago it it was kind of a potluck everybody goes and does their best and whatever happens happens and then it was you know some of them started going to social justice stuff and then in the past couple of years it's now gotten to where all of them go to social justice stuff and anybody who says something different not only do they not get a grant but they kind of you know get read the riot act or get kind of blacklisted off of the ability to even apply in the future so something's going on they're 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 censoring and vetoing ideas that aren't in line with what they have when you start having that going on and that being institutionalized in places like media and and in the the academy etc now you've got some real problems yeah people need to realize it's not just an elitist problem that's taking you know Universities um, at stake. It's, it's it's a lot of other things. When you have a leading politician in South Africa saying, "We are going to cut the throats of whiteness," he says this at a rally. Cut the throat of whiteness. And, and whiteness as a word didn't exist in this country five years ago. Given that we are very obsessed with race in this country, but the word whiteness wasn't around in the in the social environment. Um, well, it wasn't around 20 years ago at all, and it came straight out of critical race theory. Absolutely. It was a term invented in critical race theory, which is mostly a conspiracy theory posing as scholarship. Well, it's and, probably one of the most conspiratorial uh, sides of grievance studies that, that, that there is. Well, I think you're being very polite. I think it's, it's absolutely total bullshit, um, to be honest. Um, but, but you see, a politician who's a Marxist-Leninist revolutionary politician who holds, who holds 8% of the vote in South Africa uses it all the time uh, with violent imagery. So if, if you're worried about – if you don't think it's a problem, listeners generally, um, this is the sort of stuff that – imagine Donald Trump coming out as we're going to cut the throat of Mexicanness or of whatever, <laughs> brownness. You know, um, it's yeah. – it, 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 might, it might cause a problem. And so in South Africa, we sort of feel it – perhaps for the first time, we feel it a bit more than, than you in yeah. America. And, and uh, on the sciences side, uh, there's, a, there's a YouTube video uh, that was – I think it was last year. It might have been the year before where – um, there was, they want to decolonize well, our whole education system. There, there is a very real movement. There was a movement started here called Roads Must Fall. Um, because a rich white man, uh, 250 years ago gave a whole bunch of money. He owned a whole bunch of land, obviously. He was one of the colonizers from the, uh, from Britain. And he, part of the land he gave to what became the University of Cape Town. And so there was a statue of the guy. Um, and, um, uh, mm-hmm. they basically the intersectionalists got hold of this and decided that the statue had to go because it was violent. Of course, you see, um, it's, yes. it, it's, it's, it's a bronze statue, but it, 
it's violent. Anyway, um, so yes. roads must fall. They got rid of the statue, but that wasn't enough. Um, uh, then that roads must fall became fees must fall. So they decided that university fees were too high, which might be a fair complaint worldwide. I think that that's an argument. Um, but it was very much uh, around certain groups. Uh, the fees must be uh, completely abolished. They didn't even want any fees to exist. Um, but these groups uh, were often uh, quite violent. Um, and on top of that, uh, were very informed by intersectionality. So um, you, the people that were allowed to speak were of certain race groups, uh, certain gender. Um, and on top of that, that led to a whole bunch of talk about decolonizing curricula. So, uh, and this has been taken seriously but at the highest levels of our universities where they will publish uh, formal documentation about how they can decolonize the university and what they teach. And one of the suggestions, which is the funny video that gets passed around, is that science is decolonized because oh, yeah. Newton, you know, and the apple falling from the tree, um, that's just one white man's opinion of gravity. Um, but actually, there's an African view of gravity. Uh, and so we have to decolonize science because science right. is full of, uh, you know, British ideas and American ideas and European ideas. And, and really, Africa has its own science and, and has its own contribution to make, um, which should be at the forefront. And if it's not, then the other science can be dispensed with. Yep, that's uh, that's all straight out of the literature. That's your <laughs> post-colonial theory and critical race theory, so, almost to the letter. So, so I think, I think, just to say to the Americans listening to the show that if you don't feel this is kind of happening in your society, you think it's isolated to the university. I know the free speech argument. Uh, you know, it's often said, uh, uh usually it's the right in the states, but. Uh, the right makes a lot of noise about free speech on campus, but actually it doesn't really play out on most campuses and it's not a problem in society and it's, they're making a big thing out of nothing. I can assure you that given the right conditions, uh, these things can become very pernicious and very pervasive. Yeah, they can become dangerous quickly. Yeah. Um, it's something that that we were very concerned about and it's why we wanted to actually study the literature as we were going through this project um, and come to understand what's actually going on in there. And of course, Helen is is sort of our master about that. She's better than I am, and I'm probably a slight better than Pete is, but in in understanding the theory. But Helen is just unbelievable with understanding this, and she's actually writing a book about this now, where these ideas rooted in the in were rooted in the the scholarship and the the various big thinkers that influenced them, how they're making their way out into the public and where where they I mean she's doing it fair what they get right what they get wrong and what's really scary is kind of the theme and so I do I think it'll be about um next fall when that comes out but I do think it'd be something that people would want to want to pay attention for uh, this is not an isolated problem it. I don't know how people think it is an isolated problem. I don't. I hear the word privilege every day now. I, I have no idea how you can think it's an isolated problem. I see. You know, you guys have it really hard. We, of course, have a lot of the race stuff too, because our, our racial issues in the U.S. aren't settled either. But we get a ton of this this gender stuff right now. It's all so. First, it's you know, masculinity is an ideology that must be defeated. That was in. Um, that was in the, the, a major article written by Lisa Wade, who was a is a feminist scholar, and it got published in some 
I forget where it is, but some significant place, not like a newspaper or whatever. And then you have the editor of the journal Science, which is one of the biggest feminist journals in, in existence, published an op-ed in the Washington Post last last year saying, why can't we hate white men? And it's talking about the same idea, uh, that, that masculinity is an ideology. So when you have this politician saying whiteness, we're going to cut the throat of whiteness, he's he can – can can slide away from that and elide the natural racist criticism that he should be getting by saying no no whiteness isn't a thing about about race it's about it's an ideology it's a way of thinking about the world it's colonial blah 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 yeah. and he, that's all that's that's the conspiracy theory stuff that's all throughout the the literature these ideas didn't get cooked up by these activists who are sitting there in a classroom yelling about you know whether or not it's legitimate to say that that there's science behind you know putting a spell on somebody and causing him to be hit by lightning. I've seen that video too. Yeah, that's um, a great video. And, and the worst thing about it, it James, it's horrifying. Prejudice masquerading as science is nothing new. It's not. It's, it's absolutely it's not. Nothing, it's, this is just the latest iteration. When you measure skulls in the 1870s to determine intelligence, or if you determine that Jews are subhuman because they look a particular way, this is, we're not dealing with a new phenomenon. It's just the latest iteration of it. And, and for, and unfortunately throughout history too, the intellectuals and the people who, who hold information always buy into it for some reason and it takes a lot of effort a lot it's there's a a great book on bullshit and how it spreads and what it takes to get rid of it it's like 10 times the effort to get rid of bullshit uh than it takes to actually create bullshit and for some reason uh elites journalists academics they're the first ones to latch on to to bullshit um masquerading as prejudice or science masquerading as prejudice rather and it takes a lot of Effort from people like you, we try to do a little bit on this side, people like Joe Rogan, just talking about this and looking at it and saying, but it's all, it's all nonsense. Like, what's wrong with these people? Are they all like hypnotized? Are they all under the same drug? Um, cause it's obviously untrue on the face I of it. I don't this. have a, yeah, I don't have a comprehensive answer to that, but I do have a, a inkling for what's going on. And it's really easy for people to miss this point and it's subtle and it's important. There are a lot of kernels of truth in the things that they're talking about. So it's very easy, especially if you're very intelligent and you're very open-minded, which is kind of two traits that you often see in intellectuals is openness to, to consider an idea. And liberals and, as well, open-minded. Sure, sure, sure. And so you have this this situation where people are able to see that kernel of truth and then say, oh, well, I see how this part makes sense. So And then they move on with it can't be all wrong. There must be something to it. So it can be something, you know, not to put real numbers on it, but it might be 90% bullshit and 10%, you know, a valid observation. And this is typically what happens. And then people say, oh, well, I understand where they're coming from. So let's not dismiss it so quickly. Whereas, you know, when you don't have somebody who's quite so open and quite so willing to um, entertain that argument they're just going to see it and think well this is shit look at this stupidity um and so yeah i think that there's there's something to that there's something also to not wanting to discredit ideas for bad reasons but when they're given a little bit more due than they should be getting there's a bit of a problem but like i said it keeps coming back to the same thing when the system has organized itself or so people have organized it i should say such that it can't be criticized that's when you start running into problems. If people want to consider these ideas or any ideas, I'm perfectly happy about that. But when when it's made to where they can't be criticized or when opposing ideas can't be forwarded, 
because it violates some moral principle or another, now you've got a major problem. You Now you're cheating. You're not playing by the system by which we know knowledge is produced. Yeah. I, in fact, uh, saw someone uh, today or the day before, uh, a person firmly on the left, she runs a feminist blog, I think, uh, a woman by the name of Megan, I forget her surname, but banned from Twitter because she said um, – Men are not women. That was her tweet as a reply to someone. And uh, they refused to unblock her account until she deleted that tweet. Um, and she's firmly, firmly on the left. And, and as I say, she's an, she describes herself as an intersectional feminist, but, um, she posted a, quite a few tweets which said, look, um, the problem is if we can't discuss this stuff, if we can't even say it, um, and, and have a discussion about it. And, and she had a bit of a rant about how, uh, in this whole process, uh, the right has been far more open to discussing things, even though she disagrees with them on almost everything. Um, and the the people on the left and probably more the far left have just not given her the, the time of day. Um, and, you know, it's that whole the left eats itself thing. Um, so that also <laughs> it, it seems to it seems to be re- repeating itself again and again. Uh, yeah, I think that this is this is. A trait that you always see. So right now with these topics where it comes down to matters of identity, certainly the right is much more open to discuss. When it comes down to matters of nationalism or patriotism or something like that, you often find the left more open to discuss. And then everybody kind of tends to do this. You know, it's easy to find, you know, atheists who want to discuss religion and harder to find, (laughs) you know, some, some, you know, when I say discuss religion, I mean in a debate, you know, in a, open critical way so this this often comes up and right now with matters of identity the ideology on the left has been that somehow oppressed identities hold of sacredness that that cannot be questioned or challenged or whatever this is of course hurtful because it's like i had that one woman who i put it on my twitter sent me an email talking about how she i think she said she's from ethiopia She's black. She's Muslim. I think there were some other other intersectional variables if we want to add them in there and that she never thought of herself as a victim until she was taught to be one in college. And then what she repeatedly ran into was no matter what opinion she put forth, she was never challenged on that because of her identity. She was always just kind of listened to. And she's like, well, how am I supposed to grow? What if I put forth a wrong idea? How am I supposed to learn? It's incredibly insulting. It's, it's the, it's the classic bigotry of low expectations. It's, oh, you know, but the question that you have to ask at that point is who is it helping? Because it's meant to help. That's what these liberals, if if you want to talk, that's what these progressive activists are trying to do. They're trying to help. They're trying, Mm -hmm. they, they are fighting in a sense, a noble cause very badly. They are trying to help and they're using methods and they're using bogus stuff that doesn't work and they can't let it go. And that's, the road to that's hell paved issue. with good intentions, and this that's, is that's this is truly a, a truly a road to hell. Um, just quickly, it's just been Thanksgiving Thanksgiving in in the U.S. Um, you've spoken on a lot of shows, as I said, and and had a lot of interviews and spoken about what you've done. Uh, on the more sort of personal side, like how has it been in terms of your family, your friends? Um, because when you when you kind of uh, kick this hornet's nest. Uh, a lot of people have been quite badly um, injured <laughs> um, from going down this road. And, and I think there is significant risk associated with, with challenging um, this dogma. 
Yeah, I think it actually kind of mirrors what we've seen more generally. Um, our, our general response has been probably a ratio of about 100 to 1 positive to negative. It's very encouraging. Honestly, most of my family is not academic in nature or whatever, and they don't they don't care. They just think it's cool I'm doing stuff. So that that went okay. I have uh, James heard, finally finally he's doing something. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. And so I I don't um I haven't heard any negative anything from my friends who maybe disagree, but I've heard a lot of positive stuff from my friends who do agree with what we've done. Uh but it was a little bit of an issue because at least one of my family members is not particularly happy with what I did. And it's so it was this kind of weird tension where, you know, the elephant in the room and the things that some of the other people wanted to ask me about and talk about kind of always had this aura of awkwardness around it. And then, you know, there would have to be comments made like, oh, as you know, I don't agree with what ha- what you did. And, and so it just, you know, kind of permeated this awkwardness that eventually occasionally got a little bit tense and made for a probably less enjoyable Thanksgiving than we might have had otherwise. Um I, overall, I think it was okay. Family, friends first. It's a shame when that breaks down, and I don't think that we're we're that far as it, a family where a, it, it gets that ugly. It's a pity we've we've we seem to be we have lost and and losing more and more the ability to have sort of discussions about things we disagree on. <laughs> sure, and it's really uncomfortable, to be honest, going to a family gathering for a holiday and feeling a significant pressure to self-censor um, yeah. because at least knowing at least one person just isn't, isn't happy about it and isn't necessarily wanting to engage without getting kind of upset about it. Well, that's what family gatherings are for to upset each other, to be honest. Um, <laughs> so my last question to you, James, um, I understand that you work in the private sector. Um, Helen is, I believe a journalist or she runs Aero magazine, Aero. I don't know. Aereo, yeah. Aereo, yeah. So now Peter is, uh, he's a, is, he, is he a tenured professor or, or just a professor? He's just a professor. He is not tenured. All right. So, at Portland State University. And he still is in that position, I understand. So, I mean, yes. I, I assume he knew the risks going in and I assume because he, he's the one that actually, you know, um, well, all three of you came out and said, we did this. Uh, you know, here we right. are. You put yourself out there in the public, go on the biggest podcast in the world and discuss it for two hours. How is his position at the university? I don't know if you speak to him a lot, uh, but how is his position at university? And has he come under any pressure to, I don't know, do something or to resign or anything like that? I, you know, I do talk to him a lot. I don't know how much can and cannot be talked about. There's certainly some pressure coming from that direction. Of course, we made a little bit of a fuss about it about a week or two ago when his student newspaper published an anonymous letter written to the students, allegedly by a dozen faculty members who wouldn't name themselves, but put themselves under the title of a collective of being concerned about education, calling him out and trying to explain to the students of Portland state that he is a, uh, he's, he's injuring the quality of their education and the worth of their degree. It's kind of a, it's a dangerous situation. Honestly, it's one of these situations where these people hiding behind a veil of anonymity are, encouraging the kind of conditions under which some kind of rogue agent decides to go do something really dangerous or stupid. So it's really very concerning that something like that happened. Uh, institutionally, you know, it's one of those things I think that he's not really supposed to talk about in public, but it's not free from, 
It's not like they're just saying, oh, great job, Peter. Uh, you know, let's put you up in the newsletter. It's nothing like that. The The pressure sure. is, is there. He does still expect that he will not last terribly long at Portland State. It'd be nice if he could. He does care a lot about his students and being an educator. And, of course, he's very concerned as part of his motivation for having done the project in the first place is that he teaches classes like ethics. And so he can't teach ethics properly. You can't get into thorny issues if every second issue you bring up is going to get you written up by the bias response team or the diversity board yeah but in a way it's 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 quite refreshing that it happened in in 2018 where you got people who were academics or who are just intellectuals uh, they call it the intellectual dark web but like you know jordan peterson tenured professor don't know if he's going back but you can become self-sustaining by creating content and by people or for people all over the world that just choose to follow you and, and pay for the work that you do. So unfortunately he may lose his job as it is, but there's a whole, you know, much bigger audience in the world for him to well, appeal to. I think between, uh, Peter and, uh, Brett Weinstein and, 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 um, <laughs> you know, all the, all the professors that seem to be Heather, Heather, Brett's wife, I think there's a room for an entirely new university to be started up by the, by the end of the, this sort of decade. We, we may have enough to, uh, to start quite a significant faculty. Some, People are pretty well convinced that that's where the writing on the wall is. I'm not really excited about the idea of seeing the university fall, yeah. even given the capacity that the um, the Internet provides, because I see universities not only as centers of education and centers of of knowledge production, but they're, they're also centers of culture. They are absolute gems for what they provide for their communities, even if it doesn't seem immediately like it. And plus they get people together in physical space, which I think we don't appreciate. So you have academics of all different walks of, of study from all over the world gathering in physical space in the same Mm. place. And there's something to that. And, you know, obviously lots of universities like we can talk about diversity and inclusion, but rather not, but it's usually a big thing that you see a lot of professors that come from abroad so this culturally enriches places, and I think to everybody's benefit, and it works for the students to enc- encounter that. And, of course, the Internet is a great way to do this too, but there's something about the fact that it exists in physical space that there's this kind of literally brick-and-mortar embodiment of collegiality and and scholarship and education and learning and culture at the kind of the highest level. That, that really would be a shame to lose. But the thing is right now is it's, it's quite clear that the university is sick and it's not clear what disease it has, but it's not looking good. And it, my, the, my feeling is that the university is going to, if it keeps keeping things so expensive by having gone so heavily into student services and gone into so much administrative bloat, and if it keeps making things to where it seems like its own mission is compromised in some way, then it's it's going to undermine itself and you will see legitimate competitors arising on the internet that start to undo something that would be a terrible shame to lose. Well, I couldn't sum it up any better, really. Yeah, I agree with you as well. Until we find the cure, though, it's going to die a, a sick death. Um, but mainly the humanities, the STEM subjects for now seem inoculated. 
I'm, I'm not convinced, but uh, James, I'm not I'm, either. Actually, yeah, I so. think I think there's a big discussion to be had there. Uh, I see it happening on in medicine. We're we've we've got big problems coming our way. Um, but uh, thank you very much for joining us and, and giving of your time. We really appreciate it. I, I think it was just a great discussion. I had a great time. I really appreciate you guys. Thank you, especially considering the fact that yeah, apparently. A little bit hungover, but not that much. <laughs> so, <laughs> not that much. You're more, you're more lucid, slightly hungover than I am at my best. So, <laughs> thank you, James. Uh, we we I'm we do. Happy. <laughs> Flattery will get you everywhere. Everywhere, any of the end. Right. <laughs> uh, but yeah, James, this was very enlightening. Um, and um, yeah, it's, you, I think you've done the world a great service. Um, and I think you should be proud of that. And well, thank you. And 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 your your co-conspirators, if I may call them that, <laughs> um, did so I too. Think that's a good word. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. And, uh, yeah, I think, well, I've got nothing more to add. Thank you so much. Anything you want to punt? Obviously, you can be found on Twitter at Conceptual James. Anything else? Right. Yeah, let me just reiterate that um, if you want to keep up with what's going on, the place to go is our filmmakers. And, I mean, he's kind of one of our conspirators at this point, too. But uh, the the guy that, that made the video, Mike Nana, uh, is working with us to put this message out. He's like our communicator, our storyteller. We're nerds and he gets how to, to make things communicable. So he uh, has got a YouTube channel. It's the just under his name, Mike Nana. Mike spelled the usual way and Nana, N-A-Y-N-A. And I really encourage everybody to that, that's interested to go to that channel, check it out, look at the playlists he's put together. Um, subscribe if you want to support it. That's great. And Ultimately, if you want to, how do we cure the university? The only thing I know to tell you immediately is share that channel. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks so much. Really appreciate it. And until we chat again. Yeah. Thank you very much, guys. Cheers. Well, Ramon, uh, an absolute pleasure to speak with, with James and to discuss that uh, whole grievance studies project. Yeah. Well, now that I'm on, uh, yeah, it's quite interesting that you speak about I always thought for a long time, this is just university nonsense, right? Students being students, et cetera. Mm. And then while you're speaking to him, you actually make the connections to what's happening in, in South yeah. Africa. Yeah. And you're like, I always I'm making connections as we speak. So now I have a bit of a, you know, more understanding about the potential dangers and the current dangers yeah. of things like this. And besides, it is just prejudice masked as science. And that's what I'm going to say going forward. Perfect. If you enjoyed the show, as always, you can find us on Twitter at Renegade underscore reports, myself at Jonathan underscore wit, Ramon at Roman Kabernack. Uh, on Facebook, the page and the group, we have plenty of good discussions on the group. I'm sure this show will spark a whole bunch of those. If you enjoy the show and are able to, we have a Patreon page, Renegade Reports. We appreciate anything you can give towards the show so that we can improve it. Uh, and uh, try and do more stuff and give you guys more more great content. Thanks so much for listening. As always, we'll catch you next time. Cheers. This is cliffcentral.com.